Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks what Labour should do to win and change Britain for the better. I'm Sam Friedman. And I'm Aisha Hazarika. As we head into the new year, the polls suggest that Labour are in a strong position to win a general election. But it wasn't always this way. And our guests today have arguably played a big role in turning around the party's fortunes, although admittedly for quite different reasons. Sam White was Keir Starmer's chief of staff from 2021 to 2022, a period in which Labour gained a sizeable poll lead. Labour was certainly helped, however, by the Partygate scandal, which engulfed the Tories at the same time. And it was Pippa Crayer who first broke the story for The Mirror before taking up her current position as political editor at The Guardian. Sam and Pippa join us shortly to reflect on those turbulent months and the past year. And we ask what 2024 might hold for Labour. It has been a reasonably dramatic week in, in politics, again, yet again, although perhaps not quite as dramatic as some might thought it would be at the start, with the Rwanda vote that uh, Rishi Sunak won quite comfortably in the end, despite a hell of a lot of posturing from a lot of the very worst members of the Conservative Party. I loved that. I loved that like people like Mark Francois were like, giving it the big one. Yes. <laughs> and like Suella Bravo was like, I'm going to take this fucker down. And I was like, actually just going to abstain. <laughs> yes. A few of them sitting in the chamber abstaining and, start, and Sunak winning a majority of 44. But there is still a risk, I guess, that this at very least derails the government agenda in the first part of 2024, even if uh, Sunak doesn't end up losing a vote in the House of Commons. Absolutely, right. And I think you you, you tweeted this uh, brilliantly as ever. I mean, look, he's got three options, mm. but the reality is he's probably going to start by trying to throw a bit more red meat at mm. his right-wingers. I mean, the One Nation's He's never going to capitulate to them. Well, he knows they're never going to vote against yeah. him. There's I mean, nothing he can do will make uh, exactly. them Exactly. So he, he's, he's got them banked. So the question is, you know, how much of a deal is there to be done with the Star Chamber and this kind of crazy sort of Mormon family of five, of, you know, whatever it is? And I, I, I actually think, you know, it, he's, they're not out of the woods on it yet because I think a lot of them sort of 
held their noses and abstained. Mm. I think quite a lot of them actually wanted to vote against it. And it's basically the kind of the big row, the big stushy has just been delayed. It is coming down the track. Yeah, although I think the low numbers they got on abstentions probably suggests that their um, talk is worse than their ability to actually do anything to harm him. And I suspect it will give him some confidence that he doesn't need to make that big a concession to sort of force people through. Because ultimately, what else are they going to do? If they vote him down, they don't want an election. Half of them will lose their seats. They might want another leadership election, but they're not going to get another leadership election because Sunak wouldn't lose a confidence vote. So they don't really have many options. So I I do think he can probably get away with it in the Commons. I think he'll have a much tougher battle in the Lords. But in a way, that's politically easier for him to manage because if he loses the bill in the Lords, he can say, well, we'll put it in the manifesto. Yeah. Um, The will of the people will, will, will win and all of this sort of stuff. So at least it gives him a way out. What do you think this means then, Sam, for when the general election might be? Because I think the fact that he got this through reasonably comfortably, his sides are going to feel quite kind of a bit more confident now. Yeah, I mean, my view has always been that it will be in October and it's still that it will be in October. I think that's always been their plan. That's always been their plan A. They've always had the op- reserved the option to go early if there was a good reason to, but I can't see why there would be a good reason to before then. If you know, the Tory right do decide to knock him over in January, well, then they might accidentally find themselves in an earlier election, but I think it's pretty unlikely. To me, like the most important thing about this of last week has been how it reflects the sheer absurdity and disconnect between Westminster and the actual extent of the problems in the country. Like you've got people like John Hayes and Mark Francois wandering around, puffing their chests out. Being Although, with... can I just say, that little impromptu Mark Francois press conference was the most brilliant <laughs> comedy genius thing I have ever seen. But like, he's not Vito Corleone. I mean, it's just ridiculous, these he's people. He's more penfold. Well, right. And, and, and to see them sort of marching around as if they're sort of, this is the most important issue in the world... On the day that the, there's a lot of speculation about who's going to vote for who, five families, all of this sort of nonsense, I was with a group of people who, some public sector leaders of school leaders, police, uh, NHS, and had this unbelievably bleak conversation about the state of funding, the state of waiting lists, the fact that local authorities are now in a position where they are having to reject parents who are asking for their child to get special needs support, knowing that they'll lose in a tribunal a year later, but knowing that that means they won't have to pay for a year. Like it's got that tight on public sector finances across the board. There are crises everywhere. And I'm having this awful bleak meeting. Like, what can we do to get out of this? And then I go outside and I'm looking at my phone and it's Mark Francois and John Hayes. And you just think the disconnect has got so uh, huge. No, absolutely. And look, I think, you know, hold my hands up I think my profession the, the media is, is very much to blame as well we kind of love all the the theatre of Westminster yeah. continues to be incredibly intoxicating but that is also partly because the Tory party is a complete basket yes, because case. they can't do anything and I think but this is the point I wanted to make which is like we've got you know we've been here for quite a long time we're looking at another year in which you have a government that is effectively broken and can't deal with any of the actual problems we've got And but at the same time you've got a Labour party who are in incredibly cautious mode, as we've talked about through this series, uh, being very risk averse. So also not really at this stage offering many solutions. While Sunak is, I think it was minus 49% net popularity in YouGov today, Starmer's minus 22. It's not great. Like it's a better, um, puts him on course to, to be prime minister. But starting as prime minister, that, that unpopular makes the job much harder because you, know, you don't have a well of support 
to bring you through difficult decisions he's going to have to make. So the theme, I guess, of our first two series has been our Labour being too cautious. You know, there is this tension between campaigning uh, in a risk-averse way, which will guarantee you a win, versus you know, are you putting yourself into a difficult position for for afterwards? Um, and I guess well, that's something we'll pick up with both um, Sam and Pippa uh, over the course of this episode. Joining us in the studio for the final episode of the series, we have two absolutely brilliant final guests for you. They've both been involved directly and perhaps indirectly in helping turn around Labour's fortunes. Sam White was Keir Starmer's Chief of Staff for just over a year, from 2021 to 2022. Sam, hello. Hello. And Pippa Creera is the political editor for The Guardian, who, in her previous role at The Mirror, broke the Partygate story which engulfed the Tory party for many months and from which it has never really recovered. Hello, Pippa. Hello there. So tell us a bit about that story, uh, how it came to your attention, um, uh, what the experience of breaking it was like for you, and, and so what was the experience of, in a kind of roundabout way, bringing down a prime minister? Well, people sometimes say to me, how does it feel to have brought down Boris Johnson? And my response is always, well, I didn't. He brought himself down. Yes. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's a really important point. No, I think you point. find there's a plot. There was a big Oh, plot. sorry, I forgot about that. Yes, yes, plot. yes of course. It'll be conspiracy. Um, so I first heard suggestions actually during the second lockdown that there had been gatherings um, in government, in Tory circles, and tried to kind of bottom it out and got as you know, close, it was like third hand, so I tried to, as any journalist would, get as close to the original source as possible. I spent weeks on it and wasn't able to get anything over the line. I just felt it wasn't strong enough. Uh, I didn't have enough uh, varied sourcing. So I did what often happens in journalism. I sort of took the nugget of information and put it in my mind, back in my mind and thought, you don't just abandon things forever. You think there might come a moment at some point in future where this becomes relevant or useful again. But I had lots of other things to cover, and, and including the pandemic, and mm. um, and and carried on with all of that. And then later that year, I had a conversation with somebody who said to me that they had what I've described as a metaphorical brown paper envelope because mm. of the, the Watergate connotations. Mm. I like that. But it wasn't actually a brown paper envelope. It was a bit of evidence that uh, proved to me that actually there had been illegal gatherings, uh, social gatherings at Downing Street during the pandemic. It wasn't enough on its own to publish a story, but it was enough to make me think I need to ask questions about that. And then I then spent the next few weeks speaking to multiple sources, finding out what had happened, um, establishing dates, um, establishing the cast list, you know, who was involved in these things and what was actually going on at these gatherings um, until we reached a point where... Can I just interrupt that? But when you were making your initial inquiries to Downing Street and others, what was their reaction to to this initial line of inquiry? Well, first of all, when I first put in the request for comment, there was denial that any rules had been broken, which was pretty consistently their position throughout. But one of the really interesting things that later emerged when the Privileges Committee looked into all of this was a series of WhatsApp exchanges. We've all got used to sort of, you know, finding Mm -hmm. out what characters in Downing Street and beyond actually feel about things through their WhatsApps. And Jack Doyle, who was the director of communications at the time, sent a, a WhatsApp to someone saying, oh, Pippa Career is asking, Pippa's asking about um, about this. Basically, just keep denying and she'll get bored. And of course, <laughs> unfortunately for them, I didn't. <laughs> so it didn't go away. But um, there was one particular morning when we, the story was kind of 90% there. 
and Jenny Harris, who at the time was chair of the, uh, was she chair of the UK Health and Security Agency then or was she deputy chief medical officer? I can't remember which. But anyway, she was in she was in one of those roles and she went on the radio and she was asked about Christmas 2021, whether uh, people should be having Christmas parties and get together as given that the virus was still out there. The Omicron variant had reared mm. its ugly head in South Africa, was heading our way. And she basically said it's not, it wouldn't be a very good idea, best not to have social gatherings. You make choices, you make responsible choices. Um, so we asked about it at the number nine briefing that day and the Prime Minister's official spokesman effectively slapped her down and said, no, this is not what the Prime Minister thinks. The Prime Minister wants you to carry on and have Christmas as usual. And I was sitting there going, okay, so it's a year since mm. um, last Christmas was cancelled the last minute and mm. traumatic memories for everybody. The Omicron variant is coming up. Jenny Harris has talked about parties. Now is the moment to publish. And mm. so we did. And did they react in the way you expected them to react? Did it did it play out in the way that you thought it might play out? Or was it a surprise to you how long they tried to stall it? So I've covered Boris Johnson for many, many mm. years. His time as Prime Minister, before that his time as Foreign Secretary, and before that his time as London Mayor. So I kind of had learned the tricks of the trade. And by that I mean... It is his natural instinct to uh, to double down and deny. He doesn't like apologising. He doesn't like accepting that he's done something wrong. It, he feels it's a, a sign of weakness, really. Um, so it was no surprise at all that their initial response was mm. to obfuscate and to deny. Uh, I'm not sure I quite expected the lies, although having broken the Dominic Cummings Barnard Castle story mm. six months previously. They did have a very similar response then, so I wasn't entirely surprised. Mm. I knew it would probably be quite a lonely path initially that I'd have to keep going. And so therefore we didn't publish everything on day one. We had other stories which came out of, out of the course of the following couple of weeks. And then a couple of weeks later, Paul Brand from ITV got hold of that video, the mm. Lego Stratton video. And there's something I think about the visual that mm. is very, it's very evocative for people. Seeing that on screen kind of brought it to life in a way that all the thousands of words of, of print that are digital that I'd written didn't quite and it kind of tipped over and then of course you got the Prime Minister's Well it's like the two comments. things kind of linked together didn't they? They'd sort of, we'd read your words and then seeing that footage was the sort of that kind of confirmed mm. everything yeah. really. I, I remember thinking at the time I think I said at the time you know, given how the story's now come out just get everything out just say everything that happened try and get it all out and then you can move on. But they didn't do that at all. They no, just no, kept going totally. with this kind of obfuscation. It was and actually, if they had just got everything out and just done a really big, I'm sorry, we're sorry, because mm. Gavin Williamson was ha had a sort of similar thing and he actually just came out quite quickly and said, yep, this happened, I'm, I'm really, really sorry. That was one of our stories in the first 10 days and the Department for Education put their hands up and I think probably helped by the fact that he'd left the department mm. at that point so they weren't being you know, harangued by him to defend him. But nevertheless, they put their hands up and said, yeah, we broke the rules. Mm. And everyone kind of moved on. And I do think that there was a real sense at the time, people understood that these rules were hard to follow. We all made masses of sacrifices, mm. some more than others. Um, but, you know, there was, there was also sort of a sympathy for the fact that people for whatever reason, might have struggled to stick to them. And, and all the stuff we've heard subsequently about the pressures in number 10 and the fact that staff are working long hours and all those sorts of things. I think people understand that while not the front line of the NHS, they were ne nevertheless working extremely hard. And as you say, Aisha, if they'd come out initially and taken a very much more contrite approach and said, look, we're, we're just human. We made mistakes mm -hmm. and we're sorry. We're really sorry. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't necessarily have blown over immediately, but I don't think it would have ended the way I mean, that I ultimately think certainly did. for me, when the story broke, I, I was thinking, you know, yeah, this is this is bad but you know it's not terminal I think they made it terminal yeah. they really did it, absolutely it was their response it yeah. was Boris Johnson's reaction which is, which is why which, I say yeah, he, he brought, brought himself, himself down, down. Yeah, so look, we, we've heard from the person who broke the, the story uh, Pippa 
Sam White, tell us what was going on in Keir Starmer's office when this story broke. So I think it broke on a Wednesday, didn't it? I remember this because um, part of being chief of staff was staying out of lots of things that weren't your business. And I'd previously done a sort of strategy role for Keir in COVID strategy. And I'd, I'd, I'd done all his early PMQs and I knew that um, he liked to lock his PMQs the night before. And, you know, he didn't want people kind of interfering at the last minute. And, and I remember the story standing out because it was one of the very few times I phoned the PMQ team and said, I know it's Wednesday morning, but I think we should probably squeeze at least one question in on this. And they said, yep, we agree. We stuck three in. <laughs> mm. He's agreed to do it. So I think right from the get-go, there was a sense that, hold on a minute, this is, this is worth breaking our normal rules for to get this one uh, up there. And of course, it played perfectly to who Keir is. You know, his, his career, not the politician, the guy who, uh, in a loyally way, bangs a criminal to rights bit by bit, question by question. And, you know, it was a, it was the perfect story for him. I mean, and it felt during some of those exchanges with Johnson in the Commons, I mean, the, the unusually for him, the anger really came mm. through. The genuine sense of uh, of being disgusted by this behaviour really came through. I mean, did you, presumably that was there in private as well? Yeah, it was absolutely there. Um, Keir's not a hater, um, mm. but I think he really does hate Boris Johnson. It's I think there was a to. level of, um, you know, th- this man is, has brought this office into disgrace in so many ways. And Akir tells the story, so I don't think I'm breaking any confidences, but he said, you know, I've I've stood in court and I've looked in the eyes of, you know, people accused of murder or terrorism or all these things. And he says, you know, you can, they normally have a, a tell when they're lying to you. He says, Boris Johnson would stand opposite me every single week and he'd look me in the eye and he'd tell me lies. Not only he knew were lies, but he knew I knew were lies <laughs> and he had no tell because mm. he was absolutely who he was. And I think Keir, for Keir, that hit him really deep as a sort of public service person. You you can't behave like that in office. So December twenty December the sixth, twenty twenty one, was the last time the Tories had a poll lead in any polls. Over two years now since the Tories last had a poll lead in any poll. Did it feel to you at the time when that change happened that it was was such a transformational turning point in your fortunes in the Labour Party's fortunes? No, I don't think it did because if you remember, Keir had been ahead in sort of mid-2020 as well, mm. and it had slipped away from him. Mm. Um, and he got back to about minus 10 at the time. Um, he decided to change chief of staff the first time, mm. and I was brought in to do it to do a different role than, than Morgan McSweeney had done previously. Mm. And we had to get back from minus 10 from there back to where we ended up in, you know, sort of 18 months' time when we were sort of plus 30 and, mm. and have been sort of 20-ish ever since. And the public will often hold its nose and vote for a government who they don't like if they think the opposition is not credible. So for us, it was all about building the credibility. So whether we were a little ahead or a little behind, you know, they had a bad week or a good week, that wasn't the important thing. The important thing was to make the fundamental changes. So if you remember, the, what looms larger in my mind was the November, the previous month to that, we'd done a very difficult reshuffle. And if you remember, there'd been a reshuffle earlier in the year that hadn't gone well for Keir. And he was in no mood to do a second one, but we persuaded him you had to do a second one because we have to signal that we're putting our best players on the pitch. We planned it very carefully, what we called Operation Deborah's House, mm. um, because we did it. That would be Deborah Madison, presumably. It, Deborah <laughs> Madison's house, yeah, because we were so keen to make sure it didn't leak. And we spent weeks planning it, and we wanted to deliver it within six, seven hours, we, and we did. We got all the pieces moved. But I remember, I think it was the Times editorial or something that said, wow, for the first time since 2005, like, Labour looks like it's serious about winning, mm. because we had brought back some old heads, you know, Pat McFadden's and Yvette Coopers, people who'd been in government, people who were kind of heavyweight and serious. For me, that was a more important moment in us being actually ready to be an alternative government than the, the Prime Minister sort of 
troubles over parties at the time. Gosh, Pippa, I mean, you have, re- I mean, what your story has managed to sort of precipitate is quite extraordinary. How well do you think Sam's side of the equation responded to your story? How good a job do you think Keir Starmer did in terms of seizing this this moment? So I think it was very important right at the beginning for it to feel not just like a bit of tabloid tittle-tattle, but to feel like something which potentially had very serious implications. And by picking it up and running with it in the way that Starmer did, that gave it a sort of a, a weight, if you like, that it might not necessarily have had. At that point, I, I think probably over time it would have mounted to that anyway, but it gave it a weight initially. It meant it ran on the the you know one o'clock news after PMQs and the bulletins in the afternoon. And actually for several days afterwards on the Today programme, ministers were being asked about it. And it also would have meant for, for listeners that aren't familiar, the journalists huddle after PMQs would have been dominated by this question as well. Yeah, and I still have the transcript of that first huddle, which is, I, I periodically read read back because all the denials are in there. Mm. There was no Christmas parties at number 10 because that was the initial story. One of the initial stories mm. was about the Christmas party. There was no Christmas party at number 10. The Prime Minister, you know, stuck by all the rules. I mean, there are multiple occasions where I knew for a fact that one of the two people that was responding, the political side that was responding to those questions, was telling me untruths because I knew for a fact that they were at those events. Sam, when you look at the number of conservative leaders that Keir Starmer has has faced, what was that like from inside Keir Starmer's team? Because presumably the champagne corks were popping when Liz Truss won the um the the leadership contest and. When Rishi Sunak eventually became leader, was there a feeling that oh, actually he he might be you know a, a bit of a tougher opponent? Uh, yes, we were we were we were worried both times. Um, you can't have been worried with Liz yes, Truss. Yes, no. I mean, it's just not possible. It is possible. Um, now we look back on the sort of you know the cabbage days, you know, lettuce, um, lettuce days. Sorry, let us not forget <laughs> <laughs> our salad days. Let's agree on that. Um, we had spent that summer thinking. We are mid-transition at the moment to a credible alternative government. We are not all the way there yet. We have done, you know, three quarters of the steps we need to. An incoming prime minister will have looked at past precedent and work out that they will never be more popular than they are in the first roughly 30, 45 days. They'll get a poll bounce. They do a nice little giveaway budget, nice and safe, call an election, half the majority, buy five more years wreck the Starmer project, let the Labour Party go back into an internal civil war about, are we left enough? Boom, they're done. You know, it was it was almost a no-brainer. So all we could do was control things within our own area of control, which was, can we look like a credible government? Can we remove the things that give people concern about voting Labour? You know, can they trust us with the security? Hence all the, you know, the NATO and Ukraine. Can they trust us with the money? Hence Rachel Reeves and her, you know, she's more than the Iron Chancellor. She's, you know, the titanium, you know, t- you know Kevlar Chancellor. Um, all of that stuff. You did some internal, important internal rule changes, which weren't that exciting, yes, but they were quite important, we did that weren't in, they? Yeah, in, in September 21, which, which, which I mean, that, that conference itself was a really important conference yeah. for, I think it was the turning point conference. Um, but what we what we what we could do is control our stuff and be ready if they if there was a snap election. So we you know we had people squirrelled away, you know, doing a sort of manifesto just in case we need one. But then you know, no one could. You would not be responsible in opposition to build your strategy on a new prime minister immediately coming out and dropping 
handful of nuclear bombs on herself, you know, and then kind of collapsing. Yeah, I'd, I'd worked with her, so I knew she was <laughs> going to do that. <laughs> I was like, Sounds these like guys are coming. insane to be putting <laughs> this person in charge. And that conference, Sam, must have been extraordinary. You know, when there's the, the mini budget, there's the there's the fallout of the, the mini budget. What was that conference like for you guys? So that's, I mean, that's a great moment. My, my thesis going in in, in summer uh, 21 was... The public is not looking at us, they're not looking at the opposition, mm. but there'll be a moment when they do, and we can't control when that moment will come. And if the Tories are clever, they'll make sure that moment happens when we're mid-transformation, not all the way through. And um, what was so satisfying about the moment it fell, it fell in September 22 conference, um, where they just imploded. And we had uh, decided to take the fight to our internal opponents at the 21 conference. If you remember, it was yeah. it was terrible. You know, even even the observer was was slating us on the front page. I know, you of know, our I was conference. going. Why are they doing this now? Why you are know, they doing this? We had we had chair cabinet resignations at conference. We had unions disaffiliating. We had an attempt to fire the general secretary on the floor of conference. We had hecklers shouting down Keir. We had massive opposition to the rule changes. We had everything you know coming at us. And the, the conversation Morgan Keir and I had going into that was, well, look, we're not going to get a unity conference. So we've either got to fight on the front foot or the back foot. Let's fight on the front foot. And we won those rule changes. And Keir faced down the, the the opposition on the floor, if you remember, the, the heckles and things like that, which meant the speech was incredibly long because there was interruptions by both hecklers and by applauders. Anyway, your question about Conference 22, we'd done all the hard work in Conference 21. So when we got to Conference 22, we had total control of the narrative, the conference, you know, we were winning the votes, the machine. The machine. We had made some very, very smart hires. Do you remember coming out of that, all the stories were the, the, the business organisations and business representatives saying toy conference was a shambles, but wow, Labour's really got us act together. It, you know, we were welcome, it was professional, we got FaceTime with people. Well, I remember doing something at your business, I hosted a, an event at your the business conference and it, you know, it had always been such a struggle to see any credible business people there and suddenly it was this jam-packed room and it was like whoa this something's going on here and we'd all just all the journalists just come from the the conservative party conference which had been unbelievable you know to actually this very disciplined very together labor conference and it it was like the kaleidoscope had shaken yeah and that, that that's that's the point that we we got the moment where the public gaze fell on us and they said huh, let's see if these guys have worked out what they got wrong and have they changed and boom we'd done the hard work we had changed and the contrast with the Tory conference, with you know Liz Truss's budget, with the way Boris collapsed, was everything. So suddenly the public have an alternative government if they want it, and that's when you're in the game. And I always said at the time, I think I think the facts have borne me out since that the sort of plus thirty, plus thirty-seven on one particular day, you know, was froth, was Liz Truss froth. But under that was a, a solid plus twenty that we'd earned, and was ours to keep if we just played our cards right. And I think that was the inflection point. Mm. And from then onwards, we've had roughly a 20-point lead. Yeah. Um, and the know, 2023 conference season was it was not quite as dramatic, but it was basically a replay with the Tories fairly shambolic mm. and Labour. I, I, I don't think, I haven't been to very many party conferences, but it was a very, very controlled party conference. It felt very... It was very controlled. I had like PPC saying they weren't even allowed to ring their mum without getting permission from the leader's office. <laughs> <laughs> I said to one senior Labour person, um, they, they asked me what I'd thought about conference at the end and I was like, I'll be completely honest, it was a bit boring and they were like, yes, <laughs> we've achieved our goal. <laughs> now, we've all been very uh, positive about um, you know the, the the changes that that have been made, Sam. But there is a, a feeling from a lot of people, including maybe from many of our listeners, which is we're fed up with the Tories. We do think the the Labour Party's turned itself into it's not a rabble anymore. It is a respectable looking outfit. 
but where's the hope? Where's the excitement? I mean, Pippa, what was your kind of view on, on that? Well, Star has always been very clear that it was a, a sort of a three-stage project. First of all, sort the party out internally, tick. Secondly, take the fight to the Tories, tick, with a bit of help from the media, I should add. Um, and the third bit was always about setting out who he was, who they were, and what they would do differently. And this went into this conference trying to answer the question, if not them, the Tories, why us? And that's the challenge for them because... It's all been about reassurance so far. It, the strategy's all been about shoring up the, the so-called hero voters, the people that previously voted Labour that went for the first time to the Tories in 2019, many of them in so-called red wall seats, and, and reassuring them on things like the economy, on national security, on like, loving the country, on migration, and winning them back because their votes apparently count twice. <laughs> Once because they don't vote Tory mm. and twice because they come back to Labour. So, so much of the focus has been on reassurance. And I think many people can understand why Starmer has done that. You look at the electoral calculation, uh, you look at the electoral maths, and you can see that that is a route to a majority. But what I also hear a lot is that there isn't yet enough of the, if not then, why us? And that although he apparently understands that there is a need to inspire people as well, that hasn't happened yet. And people keep sort of saying, oh, you know, it's not 1997, the economy's in a totally different place, the country just isn't as optimistic mm -hmm. as it was then. And people have lost faith in politics and in politicians and won't necessarily listen to them or believe mm -hmm. them if they make big promises and offers. But uh, despite that, I think still there's a real a need for people to feel that it's not just about we're going to vote for Labour because the Tories are rubbish and we can't bear them anymore after 13 years. They want to be able to make a positive choice as well. And that whole sort of old adage about, oh, well, you know, it's not oppositions that win elections, it's governments that lose them, is true to a certain extent. But given the state of or the lack of faith in politics, wouldn't it be great if Labour could also give people a little bit of a, a spring in their step as they go into the ballot box? Do, do you think they're, they're too scared of right-wing media? I think they're too scared of negative stories about security and spending lots of money. And actually, you know, when you look at the polling, the public are quite keen on more money being spent on things as long as it doesn't sound ridiculous. And actually, they've got more space than they realise to, to be a bit more creative. I don't think it's, I wouldn't use the word scared. I'd use the word cautious. And I don't think it's just about the right wing media. It's about how they know the Conservatives would respond. Mm. And any suggestion that Labour would be profligate with public money mm. would be leapt on. I mean, a recent example, Starmer's response to the question of uh, the two-child uh, benefit mm. cap, which is such a sort of totemic issue for lots of Labour people. And, you know, members of the Shadow Cabinet feel really like it would be the first thing they could rip up if they mm. could mm. get on getting into power. And yet Starmer made quite clear that he and Rachel Reeves had said that they wouldn't be making any unfunding spending commitments um, and that they weren't going to do it. And that was a really hard message for people to hear. But what it showed is that they were serious about winning. So mm. yes, is the caution, but I guess I'm probably more forgiving than a lot of people on this. Mm. I think it's all about winning the election and they have decided that their route to that is providing that caution, that reassurance to that group of people. So that's what they're going to do. But I guess you know, they win the election. If, if they've taken this very cautious sort of focus on reassurance route, does that not make it then harder once you've won, assuming they do, to then turn around and say, actually... We've got to do some more radical things if we're really going to make a difference, or or are you able to make that switch? It, it's a it's an argument that you can win then, and you just don't you worry about that then, and you focus on the election now. 
so I, mean, I think I agree with 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 everything Pippa said and, and and you're saying. And I think I'd be much more worried if expectations were really high mm. going into this. I think when that you say would expectations be, high in terms of radical change, in, well, in, in terms of everyone's like, ah, we've you know this is the public service have never been in a worse state. The economy's almost never been in a worse state. But kids going to turn it around in a year. If people were saying that, I'd be really worried. I think mm. what they're going to inherit if they win is worse than any inheritance for a very, very long time. I mean, you know, in '97, public services were, were were in a bad way, but the economy was going along nicely, thanks Ken mm. Clark. And in 2010, you know, they had a deficit to deal with, mm. but actually, public services were at their record high mm. levels of satisfaction. You know, we'd really turned that around. Uh, you know, this time we're going in with with completely broken economy, completely broken public services, and the turnaround is going to be you know a ten year project. This is a two term project to turn this around, and I think this time we need to reassure people that we have learnt, you know, that we're credible, that you know we're going to treat treat their money seriously, we're going to treat the security of the country seriously, and you know we have sown some of the seeds of, I think I heard on this excellent podcast mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, of, you know, one of our priorities will be spending more money on uh, public investment, getting the infrastructure rebuilt, moving towards net zero, green jobs, some of that stuff, which, you know, uh, whether it's 28 billion or a different number, it's almost not the important point. It's a signaling in opposition that that isn't one of your priorities, and that is something we're going to do. But I, I genuinely think there's more to be lost by offering lots of hope and no credibility, which I think we've tried as a strategy too many times. Okay, so, and by the way, we have had many of our guests on who have said, you know, Labour doesn't need to actually be all hoopy-changey now. Mm. You you know, there is an argument that actually what Labour's doing is working and you, you shouldn't sort of get the shop stall out sort of now. But you're happy for Labour just to continue to be very tough with the message, even though some people listening might be like, oh, this is all really depressing. Uh, yeah, I am happy with the, the the message discipline. I think I think you do have to offer a little bit of you know hope and and opportunity. And I think we we do that, but I think it has to be kind of you know nine nine tenths credibility and one tenth hope rather than the opposite. So, Pepper, what do you think is the you know looking forward to twenty twenty four? What are the what's the biggest risk for uh, Labour? It does look very difficult for the Conservatives to actually win from this point. What are the biggest traps they should be looking to avoid? What's almost the worst scenario for them at this stage? Because it feels, you know, as Aisha keeps telling me, I'm, I, I do think they are going to win, and I'm very complacent about it. But I mean, Sam's um, like, there's literally not going to be a I single just, Tory MP no, left. I'm like, Sam, no, come on. Not quite a strong view of that, but I do think it's going to be a very bad election. But uh, let, let's look at it the other direction. How, how does it, how, how does 2024 go wrong for Labour? What what could happen that would derail them? Well, the biggest single thing is that somehow against the odds, and I agree with you, mm. it's against the odds, uh, the Tories get their act together. Mm. And I think actually a lot of that is out with their control as well. And it's about the economy. Mm. So inflation comes down faster than we'd expected. Maybe interest rates are cut a little bit more than we expect as well. So people's mortgages aren't as high as they might otherwise have been. Growth, rather than teetering on the brink of recession, suddenly there's an uplift, and upsurge. Uh, you know, there's greater receipts um, mm. And government has some money to spend, a bit more fiscal headroom ahead of the next budget, brings in a, a chunky cut in the basic rate of income tax, a couple of pence in the pound, for example, you know, 20 to 18p, something like that. That is the biggest risk to Labour. Mm. The Tories being seen to kind of get their act together. If Labour carries on as they are, then I think they're in a in a pretty good place. But of course, complacency is mm. is, is a big potential problem. And with 
that sort of complacency and overconfidence can come things like, you know, you can just imagine someone get getting caught on camera saying, you know, David Lammy says we want to rejoin the EU mm. or Rachel Reeves says, I mean, this is so unlikely, but <laughs> Rachel Reeves says, you know, I want to put up taxes, 5p in the pound to spend billions more on the NHS or whatever. Mm. But playing into sort of the, the stereotype, if you like, of what Labour was like mm. sort of ill-disciplined with public finances, mm. all that sort of thing, that the Tories would want to push. So it'd be the combination of those factors. But if they carry on as they are, steady as she goes, maybe mm. give a bit more, maybe communicate what their plan is a bit better because they do have some quite radical ideas. The 28, they hate us calling it the 28 billion. The, you know, the investment in, in jobs and growth and industry and infrastructure being one thing, radical reform of the NHS being another, more support for childcare and focus on the early years. I mean, there are sort of some big offers there. Halving violence against women and girls. There's some big, quite radical proposals, but I don't think that they're kind of being heard. There is going to be a huge amount of pressure from people like Nigel Farage, Reform UK and certain sections of the right wing media, GB News, who want to make this all about immigration and all about, you know, the culture war stuff um, as well. And of course, we have the Israel Gaza stuff, which is also kind of in the background. How much damage do you think those issues could cause Labour well, potentially a lot, but what's been really interesting over the last year or so is watching how Starmer and Labour deal with them, and they don't—they just don't engage. They—they they sort of, you know, an issue arises, and they say, "Well, actually, that's not the issue we want to get stuck on. We don't want to sit here and spend a lot of time debating trans rights. We want to—we want to actually talk about the fact that you know people are struggling to put a meal on their table, or mm. you know, whatever the other issue might be." And keep bringing it back to the issues that they want to talk about. Mm. And I think that's that's the right strategy. That's not to say that there won't be attempts. And as we've seen this week, once again, immigration is going to be a big issue. I mean, there's nothing they can do about it. And actually, lots of people really care about immigration. Yeah. It's up there, sort of top three issue. So they have to have a response to it. I don't think they've quite finessed the response to it just yet, I have to say. Mm. <laughs> they've got a way to go on that one. They need a better answer. But I, they are so far in showing that they're not going to be dragged into mm. Tory attempts at culture war, and I think they'd be wise to stick to that mm. approach. And, and Sam, let's say they they do win, and and, and it, the elections sort of autumn next year, as people expect. What's Keir going to be like as a prime minister, as opposed to a leader of the opposition? How do you think he'll change, having worked closely with him? Um, I think he will feel more naturally in his skin in government than in opposition. I think he is. He has a temperament that lends himself to sort of studious and sensible consideration of policy and, and judgment and decision making, you know, and, and less to sort of, you know, was it campaigning in, in verse and governing in prose? Yeah. I think he'll enjoy governing in prose. And I think um, some of the things we'll see is a return to evidence-based government, evidence-based policy making, um, which seems to be out of fashion in recent years. And I think Brexit's been part of that because any time... You know, a civil servant is asked for evidence. If the evidence suggests Brexit is a bad idea, well, that evidence can't be useful evidence. So, talking to friends in the civil service, they sort of, they feel that evidence is now rejected. You know, famously, you know, we're all sick of experts and things like that. So, much more pragmatic. It'll be less ideological. It'll be, I suspect, even more trials that see if something works. You know, bring me the evidence. And I've sat in enough meetings with Keir where he wants to know the evidence. He wants to have several meetings which follow a trail of, of, of process to convince him, you know, that this is the right course of action or this is the right change of policy or whatever it is. I think that I think that'll work well. I think one of the challenges of being Prime Minister is quite how fast you have to 
take decisions on quite mm. a lot of issues, which I think is where Gordon Brown found the transition from. from but that's one of the things Chester. I was going to ask you. If you if you sort of look at all of our primaries, you've got some at one end of the spectrum, like well, Boris Johnson way off the end of the spectrum, but David Cameron, who is very kind of I'm delegating, I'm the chair mm. of the board, and then you've got Gordon Brown, Theresa May, Rishi Sunak a bit, who are, who is sort of I'm going to make every decision myself. I'm not going to you know. I'm Prime Minister. Where do you think he will sit on that spectrum? I, th I think that's a good question. Um, I think initially it will be quite a centralising number 10. I'd like to see a return to something more like the sort of delivery unit style mm. governing of it, which I think you had Sally Morgan talking about mm. very convincingly on this programme before, where, and I, and I remember as, as an advisor to Alistair Darling, kind of go, sitting in these sessions where Blair was obviously well briefed and was asking difficult questions of each department. Um, I, I'd like to see more of that. And I think Keir is someone who's run an organisation and does think in terms of, I want clarity over who's doing what, clarity over objectives, uh, and then I want to delegate and I want you to deliver. Um, so I think it will be quite a strong centre, but I think there'll be an element mm -hmm. of this is what you need to deliver, go and deliver and report back to me on how you're delivering it. What, um, one, of, one of Keir's team, uh, who is uh, very smart and is helping write the manifesto at the moment, he described it as we're going to be a great reforming government, not a great spending government. And there's an awful lot you can do uh, reforming regulation. And uh, I think we saw it in one of the shadow environment minister's speeches on water companies, water policy, saying we're going to do a lot more holding individual directors to account. And you know there will even be potential criminal sanctions against directors. So there's things you can do to really toughen up the regulated sectors without necessarily nationalizing them or without spending a huge amount of public money. And I think that's going to be one of the first places they turn. Pippa, just quickly, how soon do you think Starmer's, Team Starmer and Rachel Reeves as well are going to have to show that they can actually d deliver in, in real terms for people? I think they're going to have to hit the ground running. And I think what's happening now is really interesting because they have um, incoming potential incoming governments are offered um, talks with the civil service. In 1997 or pre-1997, um, Tony Blair's um, team began those talks more than a year out from the general election. They haven't begun yet. And that's because Labour haven't yet asked for them. And people suggest that Sue Gray, who obviously has gone in with the, with the aim of preparing Labour for government, sort of technicalities, the day to day of running a government, was a bit taken aback by actually that they weren't yet ready to begin those talks, that they're still, um, Starmer wants to bomb-proof the, the policy areas. Um, there's still conversations going on about spending and priorities within each of the different policy areas. And so even though they've sort of had some sort of spad school type stuff and shadow cabinet school, you know, cabinet minister school with the, with the Institute for Government, they haven't actually begun those really important talks, the main aim of which are to give the civil servant, civil service time to prepare should Labour win the election so that they can hit the ground running. So I think that's a really key bit of the jigsaw which isn't actually yet there. Mm. Just just I mean, just on that, I think if, if, you're, if you're just thinking of one word that describes the Kia project, it's pace. It's been the journey that he's taken in the four years is incredible and it's been about relentlessly driving stuff um, uh, to the point that's made a lot of people deeply uncomfortable and that if you tried to do it over, say, 10 years, things would have looked much smoother and more gradual and there'd been more time to think about it. But, you know, looking back... Um, even even as recently as sort of, sort of two years ago, no one thought we were going to win, um, but we've got a real shot at it here. So there's a huge amount of work being done very, very quickly. And I think it's sensible for them to not necessarily rush the access talks uh, at this stage. You know, I've got huge faith that Sue will have a very clear idea, having seen lots of access talks mm. from different sides and knowing how the civil service works. And also just mentioning the Sue Gray thing. I mean, that was an absolute masterstroke to get 
Sue Gray to come uh, and work for Kia. And certainly so many senior civil servants, I mean, Sam's probably in the same position, so many senior civil servants I speak to are just so reassured at the fact that, that Sue Gray's coming in. And also in terms of tr- getting shadow ministers up to speed, getting special advisors up to speed. I mean, that is really the woman who, who knows it inside out. Absolutely right. And I think it shows another of Keir's talents that he is he he has horses for courses. So this is a pace point too, that he you know, three chief of staffs in one term of office. Um, you know, Morgan McSweeney, if you're storming a castle, you want Morgan storming that castle, right? <laughs> he will take out a fortress. But they got to a stage in the middle where they needed the turnaround moment. They need to professionalise, they need to hire, we need to balance the budget, we need to reposition politically, we need to drive the machine a different way, which I, I came and did with my experience of politics and government and, and corporate life. But this stage, the carrying the vase into government stage and preparing for government to make sure they can hit the ground running, they've absolutely got the right person in Sue Gray. So uh, again, this is Keir, the sort of high pace, high determination, but also, you know, his flexibility. Sam, the, the, the Labour movement is really mourning the passing of Alistair Darling, who's a, just a huge figure in the last Labour government. You had a very close relationship with him. You were his special advisor from 2004 to 2010. So you worked with him across a number of, of government departments. What was he like as a man? What was he like as a boss? Um, he was a really important boss to me it you know he literally changed my life working with him and he had this uh, kind of austere public persona uh, which he showed the world you know as he, he used to joke he'd won boring politician of the year twice um <laughs> but he was actually an incredibly warm kind you know and funny person behind the scenes and that's what i remember when i look back on it as i have over these last couple of weeks all I remember is laughing a lot. And, you know, let's be honest, there weren't funny times. Um, it was pretty grisly at, at some points. Um, but as what he was like as a politician was he was very good at um, taking advice. He'd you know find the experts in the civil service. He'd listen to them. He'd probe them. And then he'd use his well-honed judgment. And I think he... Uh, many civil servants have said to me subsequently, he's one of the favourite ministers I've ever worked with because he took that very calm, very measured uh, judgment on the advice being offered to him. And I think, you know, we were genuinely lucky as a country to have him uh, go into that global financial crisis. There's many other politicians who I'm not sure would have uh, dealt with this in, in such a calm way. And an incredible survivor as well. There's only um, three people who were in the cabinet the entire time from 1997 to 2010. It was Gordon Brown, Jack Straw and, and Alistair Dunn. And you're absolutely right. And, and when he hired me as a naive 20-something in... 2004, his very first words to me were, we'll probably be fired next week. <laughs> and he proceeded to repeat that pretty much every week. For the next. <laughs> he almost never lost his temper ever. I think in six years, I managed to make him lose his temper with me twice. Um, what did you do? Uh, one of the times uh, we were having a private dinner in number 11 with my wife and his wife, the excellent Maggie. And um, my job at this dinner was to persuade him to share more of his personal life and feelings with the public. <laughs> now he was a major public figure. Uh, that did not go so well for me. Um, uh, the, the excellent Catherine McLeod was, uh, inherited that role of trying to <laughs> twist Alistair's arm to do that. But he was amazingly calm. There's even times when he would just say, in the midst of some crisis when everyone was throwing their toys in all directions or refusing to negotiate, he'd say, I've made my position clear. I'm going to bed now. I suggest you come to an arrangement because I'm making this statement in the morning. I would leave. Just class act. Mm. Um, he was he was he was really good under pressure. Pippa, what are your reflections on Alistair Darling? 
he was very kind to me. I first um, became a lobby correspondent in 2001. And I think he might have been, I can't remember if he was Scotland secretary or transport secretary at that point, but he was he was certainly a cabinet minister. And I uh, spent a few years working for the Daily Record, which is um, obviously a Scottish newspaper. I was their Westminster, uh, their fine Westminster Scottish editor, newspaper. fine Scottish newspaper. Um, and he made sure that I had access, not just to him, but to other Scots across government. And there were lots, um, <laughs> but it was very generous, it was very decent. And actually, you know what? Gave politicians a really good name. Mm. Well, my reflections are of just him being just very, very, his dr- such a dry sense of, of humour, but just incredibly kind. And of course, he and Maggie were this absolute sort of powerhouse together. Mm. They were just wonderful. And I have so many happy memories, particularly of going to the Edinburgh Festival and doing my stand-up comedy shows about politics. And Sam, you came Alistair was always in the audience and I remember it's like I actually had a few jokes about Alistair in there and at one point people looked around and they were like Alistair Dunn's in the audience <laughs> and afterwards in Tiffle we went for a drink really? after Alistair was like I thought it was high praise he was like that was pretty good I was like, wow, <laughs> that is like but also just so generous he and Maggie were great hosts and just you know Sam you'll have such fun memories of just sitting around their kitchen table yeah. you know drinking red wine and yes. putting the world to rights and sort of both rowing and laughing about politics we drank a lot of wine. A lot of wine. <laughs> a lot of wine. Thank you very much for a blockbuster finale to our to our series. And so thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, Sam, as we end the year and we end the second series of the the power test, let's just take a moment to to I think sort of reflect on how far we've come. Mm. It's like a journey. It's like yeah, it's, it's like journey. X Factor, our journey, yeah. our journey. Um, because it has been quite a journey, right? Because when we sort of started it, our exam question was, well, I still think is if Labour wins. But mm. as time has gone on, mm. many of our guests and you, it's more like when Labour's mm. going to win. So there's been quite a big shift. But what are some of the, the moments or observations from the two series that have stood out to you from this year? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the things that have stood out for me are that we've had a lot of guests who aren't Labour, progressive, but aren't Labour, who've been who basically said Labour doing the right thing. You know, it's been a very there's been a very broad kind of consensus that in terms of winning the election, at least Labour. You know, we had Nick Bowles, who was a Tory minister, come on and talk about how you know Labour were the only party who had a chance of putting through the kind of planning reforms that he'd wanted to do as a minister. We'd had we had David Gork, who was a Conservative justice minister, come on and say he thought you know Labour were broadly in the right place on justice. It does feel that they've positioned themselves to get a very broad range of centre, even to centre right support as well as obviously the more kind of loyal Labour people that we've had on the programme who've, who've said similar things. We had Jim O'Neill as well, who was, a, who was a minister for Osborne in the Treasury, sort of who was actually pushing Labour to go further on, on, on some of their sort of spending pledges and fiscal rules. So that's kind of stood out to me. Is, 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 is there's almost such a kind of consensus view among, you know, from centre-right downwards that it's time for Labour to have a go, that they're broadly in the right place in a lot of this stuff, that yes, they're being cautious, yes, there's a lot of detail to fill in, yes, they could go a bit further, even from people who you'd think would be to their right. But that's why I kind of feel very confident that they will win, because 
they've managed to occupy that space very effectively. I know, but these are our people. These are all the elite people I mean, I know I that know. we all hang around with. What about the real people? <laughs> the real sort of you the, uh... sick and me. This is so typical of you. If you go to this Lee is why Anderson's Brexit happened because yeah, of people yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. you. Um, um, but if you know, and, and and but if you look at every, I was saying to you this off air. You, know, you look at every segment of the population. The ones that have swung to Labour most are exactly those types of people who did move to to the Tories last time uh, in greater numbers, who did vote Leave, who are more socially conservative. They've actually swung the most to Labour. The people who haven't swung to Labour, who've swung the other way, away from Labour, are the most left-wing progressive activists, yeah. which from an electoral point of view is kind of fine because those left-wing activists tend to live in seats that are very heavily Labour already. And it does suggest the polls might be even better for Labour than, than they look. But it could start to cause a problem if unhappiness with Labour moves from just the most left-wing groups towards the more centrist ones who are who are expecting more and want something to happen. Yeah. The other thing that I think, you know, for Labour people who do, and I'm sure the great and the good of the Labour Party listen mm. to this regularly, Sam, of course. I think one of the things that they should take heart from is that there is a lot of goodwill towards Labour. Mm. There is a feeling that people do want a change. They do, as a strapline of our podcasts suggests, they want Labour to change Britain for for the better. And one thing I do hope is that if a if a Labour government does come in, that they will reach out to. There's a lot of wisdom and experience. Mm. There's a lot of good ideas from from people who are maybe not Labour Labour, but they have got some quite good ideas. Yes. And I do hope that you know I'm not saying do a government of all the talents or anything like that, but I do hope Labour does reach out because you know wisdom doesn't just reside within one party. No, it doesn't. And I do, again, this comes back to the centralising tendency and being prepared to trust beyond your, your core to a degree um, when it's going to help you out. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I've heard this quite a lot. You know, lots of people are offering Labour help at the moment. They are finding it quite hard to give help to Labour. There is a sense of, you know, we're almost a sort of not quite a bunker mentality, but certainly a sort of very protected mentality. Um, and and I, do, I just don't think you can run a good government like that. So I hope they get a bit more willing to, to venture into the world. That's all for today and all for this series. If you have any thoughts or questions, tweet at the power test or email pod at thepowertest.co.uk and have a happy Christmas, a happy Hanukkah or whatever it is that you celebrate. And thank you so much for listening this year and for all your support. And we will be back with more episodes in 2024. And of course, if you do want some Christmas listening, all the back catalogue of The Power Test is available or where you get your podcast from. If there's a particular policy area you're interested in, dive in. You know, they're standalone episodes. And do um, remember to uh, like and subscribe and leave us a review. And if you've got nerdy political friends, spread the word about The Power Test. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.